Okay, I want to welcome you to our January 24th, 2021 Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service. Thank you for being with us here today. If it's your first time, I'd like to welcome you. My name is Max. Welcome to Sheepgate Fellowship. So, we are continuing uh, to look at the book of Judges. We just concluded chapter 1, and I'll quickly review those things for you before we begin the actual content of the sermon. Well, let's read Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 today. Judges, the opening five verses of Judges 2 actually kind of package and conclude uh, the opening chapter of Judges, Judges chapter 1. So after reading Judges 1, you read 2, 1 to 5, and you sort of get a, um, I guess, this intermediary or like in-between uh, rebuke from God against Israel for the actions uh, that they conducted in chapter 1. And then it leads us uh, into the second section of Judges, uh, of the opening two chapters of Judges, and we're going to go into a narrative of Joshua's death. Uh, but let's read Judges 2, 1 to 5, and focus on that for today. So if you have a Bible, please open it. It's Judges chapter 2, once again, verses 1 to 5. I will read, and you can follow in your Bible. This is what the Word of God reads. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your Fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you've done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, people lifted up their voices and wept so they named that place Bochim and there they sacrificed to the Lord amen the word of God a lot has happened this week and there's a lot to pray for but let's begin with our unreached people group of the day they come from the nation of India there are about 527,000 of these people completely unreached none are Christian uh, their main religion being Hindu. They are called, I'm going to butcher this, the Karan Kaasta of India. They live in the eastern regions of India and also the sort of spread out into the central regions and provinces as well. But they are uh, they are the people group we are praying for today. There are about a half million of these people. We want to pray for their salvation and we want to pray for the gospelization of these people. A lot of people groups in India that are unreached, right? We've been praying for them, uh, I think, at least for the last year or year and a half or so. Let us uh, pray for them. Uh, if you caught the United States presidential uh, inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, that was weird, um, this past week, um, I'm sure you know you were able to witness some really great stuff. I think the greatest thing that came out of that inauguration was the Bernie Sanders meme, right? I think that's probably the best thing. And we can only hope and pray for even greater memes, uh, so on and so forth, to come out of that. Um, but yeah, just watching the inauguration and uh, watching all the events surrounding it, um, you know, we're just two weeks, you know, separated from the Capitol Hill riots and everything uh, that has happened this past year. Um, you know, no matter who's in that office and no matter who is uh, in that seat, what we would consider the highest political position probably in the free world today, um, we need to pray for them no matter what, right? Uh, whether we agree or disagree uh, with the political views and positions um, and various things, right? <clears throat> As a Christian and as a human being with certain sets of moral values and perspectives, uh, it's important we pray for our leaders. For example, I don't agree with probably 80% of the things that Justin Trudeau thinks and says and comes out of his mouth, but still, I pray for him. Why? 
Maybe more so because I disagree with him, right? Maybe more so because I want change in his life. Um, but I pray for him, right? And in the same way, I may have major, this is me personally speaking, have major disagreements with certain presidents, but I like to pray for them. So we're going to take this time uh, in the highest office in the free world, in the, what we would call consider the Western democratic world. We want to pray uh, for this president uh, for the next four years, um, that it will be marked hopefully uh, with values and morals and ethics that are in fact uh, true to the word of God. He swore an oath, right? With his hand on a Bible. He tells aside, put his hand on the Bible and he swore an oath. Let's pray for him uh, that that word would guide his presidency. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much today. We thank you for gathering us here today. We thank you for bringing us together as a church and as the body. We pray for churches all over the world celebrating and remembering praising and honoring and worshiping you this day god we ask for the word to minister to us it convicts and transforms our life father we pray for the karan kayasta of india we pray for the half million of these people who are completely unreached we pray for the church of india to preach the gospel to them we pray for friends and and, and peers and colleagues who are christian believers in this community and connected with this community that they would share the good news of Jesus and missionaries as well. Father, we also pray uh, at this time uh, for the new president of the United States. Uh, he's not our president uh, per se, but still uh, the leader of the most powerful and influential country in the world today. We ask, Lord Father, uh, as he swore an oath with his hand on a Bible, the Lord, that, that the contents of your word would be the guiding principle of his presidency. I pray for good influence in his life. I pray for brothers, true brothers, genuine brothers and sisters in his life to speak the truth to him. Uh, and Father, that this ne the next four years uh, would be marked uh, with values, virtues, and, and positions and um, decisions that are dictated by the word of God. We thank you so much and we pray uh, for everyone here today um, that we gather together, we center our focus on the word. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, Judges 2, 1 to 5. Today's sermon is entitled, Empty Weeping. Empty Weeping. So we're just coming off chapter 1 in Judges, where we began in the opening section with, you know, a somewhat successful beginning of a conquest of Canaan. And as they enter Canaan and they start to capture these cities, they begin to compromise. And there was a tolerance of evil. We talked about this last week, right? The toleration and the compliance or the compromise that we have, we have a tendency to do so with wickedness and evil because it's a source of pleasure and desire. So we do these things and we think, oh, what's the big deal? It's just a little thing that we're compromising on. It's not a big deal. It's not a deal breaker. We're just trying to create peace, right? I mean, this is always the thing, right? We just want to make sure everyone's happy. That's usually why we compromise. And what happens as a result, they become an influence to the Israelites, right? And eventually, at the end of Judges, when we get there, you will see there is full apostasy in this generation. They turn away from God. And it's not surprising considering the opening chapter of Judges. And it's the warning that this author is trying to give to us today. Now, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 begins with the presence of the angel of the Lord. So concerned was God that he would bring a direct messenger, not a prophet, not some man who would come up and speak these are the words of God, but no, an angel of the Lord coming from the heavenly realms to earth, speaking directly on behalf of God. Like this is how urgent this message was. And it's not necessarily a pleasant one. It's a rebuke. But brothers and sisters, I know we throw that word around a lot these days. Rebuke, 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 right? 
Rebuke is for the purposes of change. It's not for the purposes of just pointing someone else's guilt and shame and sin and saying, you wicked sinner, and ending it there. That's what we like. Well, that's what we like to do as rebukers, the sinful rebukers, right? We like to just be like, haha, caught you, you dirty, rotten sinner. I caught you in your sin. And we like to point that out and be like, you should be ashamed of yourself. And then we feel good about ourselves for rebuking them on that. But brothers and sisters, true rebuke is in the Old and the New Testament. The purposes of the prophets bringing this uh, revelation of sin in one's life is so that they would not sin, so that they would repent. It's for the purposes of love, right? But very often we hear rebuke and all we hear is hate. We hear anger. We hear harshness. Sometimes we take rebuke like this in verses 1 to 5, and that's what happens. Anyways, it leads to weeping. It leads to the weeping of Israel and sacrifices and worship to God. But I'm going to point out something today, and the title of the sermon is probably the key giveaway. Sometimes our weeping is empty or hollow. Dare I say, meaningless. Honestly speaking, I'm not a person who sheds too many tears. I don't cry that often. But it's not that I don't feel things. I just don't cry, okay? Um, In fact, I can probably recall most of the moments in my adult life when I had cried. Most of those few moments were actually during, like, movies. (laughs) Sounds ridiculous, right? Um, But they probably aren't the movies that you would expect one to cry in, okay? For example, I cried during the movie... Monsters Inc. Right? This Pixar's Monsters Inc. You know that end scene where Sully is like putting that baby like boo back into her bed and then she doesn't know it, but he's saying goodbye basically forever. That's so sad, right? Okay, maybe I'm the only one there. Okay. I also cried for some reason during Pinocchio. Maybe it's just Disney movies. Okay. So in Pinocchio, you know Geppetto, the puppet creator guy, like he makes Pinocchio and he's so happy he has this son. And then Pinocchio I think gets stolen or something. Basically, he gets kidnapped or something like that, right? On his way back from school. And he is just, like, heartbroken. He's lost his son, right? This, this puppet that came to life. He's just totally distraught. That was really sad. I don't know why I cried there. And then I think I teared up just a little bit, just a tiny bit, in uh, Fast and Furious 7, when Paul Walker and Vin Diesel's cars are, like, separating. And then, and then that, that Wiz Khalifa song comes on. And then, like, the, their, their car, you have the white car separate driving off onto the other road anyways i don't know why i know it's just such a sad moment right needless to say some of us are i know some of you some of us are tear jerkers like we just cry over anything and any like for example when our church went to watch like uh was it endgame i remember like they were crying when like all the marvel heroes come back when like behind you captain and then like they all come out of those like war pole things and then like literally like people were crying and i'm I'm like, why? (laughs) This is a celebratory moment where all these... It's not like you didn't know that they were going to come back. (laughs) Like, you know, you don't... Anyways, um, you know they're going to come back. So they come back and people just cry. I don't know why. It doesn't indicate, I don't think, right? A lack of tears or an abundance of tears does not indicate a lack or abundance of emotion or heart or genuine heart within oneself, of course, right? But certainly it is one way one method by which one visible method or physical way that we display the range of emotions in our life right because there's tears of joy but there's also tears of sadness and there's tears of you know gratitude and all these things right tears are found in scripture of course 
Right? We fee- we find tears in Scripture. Famously, shortest, you know, people consider this is the shortest verse in the Bible. John, chapter eleven, verse thirty-five. Jesus wept. One of the easiest verses in the Bible to memorize. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty-five. Right. And of course, in other instances throughout Christ's ministry, we have tears all throughout the Bible. But the presence of tears does not indicate any real or true change. Right? It may indicate, and it certainly to me indicates, genuine emotion at the moment. But all too many times in the human life, tears are but a temporary reaction outflowing from our emotions. They don't, they don't lead to what is more important. Genuine action. Consider that verse with Jesus in John eleven thirty five, 35, where he wept. Why did he weep? He wept out of sorrow. By the way, I preached on this, so you should know this, right? Please, I hope you know this. But why did he weep? He wept out of sorrow and a troubled heart, not over the loss of Lazarus, which he already prophesied and predicted that he would bring back to life in the beginning of John 11, right? He's not weeping over the loss of this brother. He's going to bring him back to life. But at the lack of faith, of those people there who were mourning this loss even with the presence of Christ before them, not being able to comprehend the words and the teachings he was saying. He just said, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? And yet they could not comprehend who Christ was and what he could do. They failed to see Jesus for who he is and what he could do. That was the point of that sermon, by the way. His weeping was for the people's failures in their faith and against the blindness of sin that dominated their lives. What follows that weeping in that verse? The point of that passage is not simply that Jesus has compassion and he wept for people. I've heard so many crappy sermons on this. John 11, 35, see, Jesus is so compassionate for you. Yes, he is, but that he's not compassionate because he feels sorry for you in that verse. He feels, he's angry at you for your sin, for your wickedness, your evil, for not being able to see who he is. He's so heartbroken. The sin is separating us and him. So he goes from a state of weeping and then he acts on it. He demonstrates his weeping in this way. He truly, that he truly is the resurrection of life. He calls forth Lazarus from the grave and he comes out. And what happens as a result? God is honored. He's glorified. And the once mourning spectators that were there doubting Jesus and how this situation could possibly be resolved, they marvel at the work of God, right? Now, our weeping is meaningless if it is momentary and left only in a vacuum. Our weeping, especially over sin and evil, must enact a response in us. We are right to weep over our failures and transgressions before God, but brothers and sisters, let that weeping lead you and I into growth, into maturity, into the pursuing of a walk with God, then God is glorified in our life. Our spectators will marvel at the work of God in you and in us. Let our weeping, therefore, not be empty. That's my concern for today. As we look at today's text, we will examine firstly what God does and then what people do in comparison to what God does. And then, in conclusion, we will look at the response of God to what people do, and then the response of people to God's response, okay? I believe the example we are shown here is a firm warning to the dangerous cycle of guilt and conviction that leads to nothing more than mental repentance. We're really good at this, right? We're really good at just mentally comprehending 
my sin. But there's no true repentance in the heart. Let's take a look. What does God do? What God does? A couple things here that I see. Verse 1, first part of verse 1. In verse 1, I see three things. But one is God delivers his people. God delivers his people. He reminds them of this. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. He doesn't say Moses. Right? He doesn't credit anything else or anyone else. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. The angel of God, a direct messenger from God, speaking on God's behalf, reminds the Israelites, amidst their unfaithfulness and tolerance of wickedness and evil in the form of co-mingling with the Canaanites, that God is their mighty deliverer. And he will continue to be that way. What was the state of Israel in Egypt? Remember that Israel was in a state of slavery under Egypt for 430 years before God sent Moses to free them. To say that it took a while might be a bit of an understatement. They cried out to God. Certainly, that's what God says. I heard their cries, right? And there were probably many Israelites throughout those 430 years that lost hope, that lost faith, that lost patience in God. But God delivered them in the end in accordance with His will and His timing. And this is the part that is so troubling for us. Because what did I say a few weeks ago? We demand things of God on the, on the, uh, on the premise of, if you love me, you will do this for me. Brothers and sisters, that's selfish love. That's self-seeking love. We enter human relationships like this, right? To your romantic partner, you might say, if you love me, you would do this for me. Well, that's an ultimatum. There are different ways that each of us uniquely display our love. God doesn't have, has no reason. He, he doesn't owe us his love. When he displays his love, he does so in his way, his timing. It is our position as creation to be witnesses of that love and recipients of it faithfully. Sure, it may not happen the way you want, and it may not happen when you want it. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he's not hearing these cries. So certainly they cried out, and people lost hope and faith and patience over those centuries of waiting. But God delivered them in the end, in accordance with His will, His timing. Israel had experienced this, and they could rest in knowing that in any circumstance, God is delivered. If it is His will and His timing, He certainly can deliver. Moses may have been the visual leader for the Israel, but he was acting, of course, on God's behalf and at His word as he was God's messenger to Egypt and for Israel. Certainly no sane reader of Exodus could conclude that Moses should be credited for Israel's deliverance. Right? Even Moses kept pointing to God. Right? How did God deliver them? Remember this. Egypt was a powerful nation, if not the most, at that time. God delivered a lowly enslaved people from the mightiest of earth's kingdoms by demonstrating not the power of God's people, but the power of God for his people against those who challenged them. Ten plagues unleashed on Egypt, each to show the might and power of God, his sovereignty even over Egypt and Pharaoh and his deliverance for Israel. This is most emphatically demonstrated, of course, at the Red Sea, where God's people safely crossed through to the other side, and the miracle of the splitting of the sea allows that to happen. Whereas the chariots of Egypt upon their attempt to cross the sea, are washed. 
completely away. Such powerful physical imagery in the form of one of the greatest miracles witnessed by any community on earth by the hand of God. Powerful image of what? The gospel to come, right? God leads his people to his promises. That's the second thing I see here. He leads his people to his promises. Not our wants, to not our desires, not our passions. He leads us to his promises. That's better than what you want. Look what it says. And let you into the land which I have sworn to your father. When did he make this promise? Remember back in Genesis when Abraham was just some random dude in the middle of nowhere? God was like, you, right? Pack up your bags. Take up, take up all your things. And go here, right? And Abraham's like, okay. <laughs> he like goes, right? And then God brings him up on top of a mountain. And he looks up, looks uh, out, and he says, all this land you see from the north to the south and east to the west, your descendants will inhabit this land. And that promise and covenant is made then and there on that day. But God doesn't just deliver his people from slavery. That's good enough, isn't it? Just deliverance from the state of slavery is worthy enough for us to celebrate, honor, praise, worship God. Thank you, oh God, for freeing us from and delivering us from slavery. But not just that. He takes them from a state of slavery and moves them to a promised land. This is land he promised in Genesis to Abraham. Generations, centuries ago. This is land that God covenantally guaranteed would be land that Israel would inherit and inhabit. He gives deliverance and destination. He takes us from our old and he brings us to the new. Right? It's not just deliverance, but it's destination as well. There's a promise of a place to be. One would think that this ancient promise given to Abraham, which none of these people have ever seen, only heard of, given so long ago, would be but a myth by now in this community. But surely enough, God not only brings his people out of that state of slavery and misery, but he leads them home. Are you starting to see how the Exodus narrative and then ultimately the conquering narrative of the Canaanite conquering narratives in the Bible are precursors, pre-images of our own salvation journey. Our deliverance from slavery and then push towards a destination. Are you beginning to see that in the Old Testament? I hope you can because it's a powerful thing. That's why the Old Testament is there for you to read. So you would think they would forget these things. Surely God is working, little by little, day by day. There is no promise in Scripture, I guarantee you this. You can look for it and you can correct me if you want. There is no promise in Scripture made by God. He will not and does not keep. Right? Perhaps that's why we are to remember the promises of God, even when we think they are not being kept or will not be kept. To remember and hang on to, hey, those ancient promises he made, yeah, in the end, he kept them. And he kept them pretty well. Maybe better than the Israelites could have ever imagined. Maybe he'll keep those promises in my life too. <laughs> Maybe it's just enough suggestion for you to understand that God is truly a promise keeper. D.L. Moody once said this, God never made a promise 
That was too good to be true. It may sound too good to be true. It's not. That's why I love to encourage people when you pray. Pray for the promises of God. I think this is one of the most powerful things about reading and memorizing scripture. When you start, if you're, if you're unsure, I mean, the Bible is a big book, right? If you're unsure of what verses in the Bible to start memorizing, some people like to memorize like the famous verses, right? Or some people like to memorize, you know, a certain category of verses. Or some people to memorize like, they like to memorize like whole books, right? Like the entire book of, you know, First Peter or whatever, stuff like that, right? Might I suggest you start, re I recommend that you start by memorizing the promises of Scripture. Promises that God has made covenantally to his people has spoken directly because those promises start to become your prayers you start to understand and understand the direction and the guidance that it gives to your prayers you start to recognize what you ought to pray for as those verses are memorized in your heart the third thing i see is god keeps his covenant with his people this is on the lines of what i just said he says i will never break my covenant with you a covenant he made with them he'll never break it he says even though and he's going to follow in verse three right you broke it <laughs> you disobeyed it right we'll get to that now on the previous note god is a keeper of his promises and his covenants what would we say of god if he wasn't or if he didn't do these things what is extraordinary to me when i read the entirety of scripture from genesis to revelation is that god makes covenants and then in line with those covenants that he made we see the entire history of the bible and humanity therefore unfold one by one they're made and they're kept and as we follow the timeline of the redemptive history it all leads to and points to what we've said this jesus christ his coming his death his resurrection is coming again it is surely secure to us to know the consistency of this god and that in this god we have one who not only speaks a word but keeps it i think it's fair to say and I know it sounds so little. It sounds like so obvious. Of course, he's, he's God. He's perfect. Of course, he makes, says something. And of course, he does it. That's God. I understand that, Max. What's so impressive about that? I'll tell you what's impressive about that. You tell me a person who says everything that they say and does everything that they said. Nobody. Nobody's like that. One of the most extraordinary things is the consistency of God's word and his actions. You know why? Just look around you. Not your mother, not your father, not your brother, not your sister, not your loved one, not your husband, your wife, or your children, or anybody is like that. They have lied at one point to you in your life. They have made a promise they have not kept. They have said a thing they have not done. I guarantee it. I think it's fair to say that one of the most damaging things that can happen in any relationship is a loss of trust, right? That seems to be the crux of all relationships, isn't it? We sometimes think, oh, relationships are built on love. No, it's not. Love is built on trust. Think about it. Would you love someone you cannot trust? No way. And what is trust? Well, it's faith in knowing that one's words and actions are consistent and coherent. This is what we mean by good character. People of good character. When you say, 
Anytime we say, oh, I want to meet someone nice and good. I want to meet a good person. Singles that I talk to, they're always like, oh, Max, do you know anyone that's good, like a good person? I'm like, what do you mean by that? One of the first things they list every single time, honesty, trustworthiness, responsibility. Why? That's what they want. They don't want, they don't want any, like, sure, maybe they want the cars and the money and all that other stuff too, but character-wise, what do they mean by good character? One of the key qualities that we look for in any human being. What's the different dictionary definition of character? It, uh, of, good, of character itself. It's men the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. We even look for responsibility and trustworthiness as some of the strongest attributes in every category of human society. Candidates for our workplaces, romantic partners, business partners, friends that we associate with and socialize with, politicians that we vote for, teachers that we trust to teach us authoritatively. And responsibly it's one of the most globally accepted attributes in any and every human society religion thought like area sphere of the world no matter what culture of any generation this has been one of the most upheld qualities of human character trustworthiness we all agree this is a good thing and here, brothers and sisters, from Genesis to Revelation, we, hear, we read of a God who speaks and keeps his word faithfully and fully all the time. I love the hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not, as thou hast been thou forever will be. The last thing I see is that God directs his people away from sin. Look at verse 2. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down the altar. Could that be any clearer? <laughs> if you were there, would you go, what do you mean by that? <laughs> right? Like, no, it's make no covenant. Do not mingle with these people. You shall tear down their altars. But is it okay if we just like have them around as neighbors? No, you shall not <laughs> make a covenant with these people. God is clear in scripture how to deal with these people and Israel disobeyed. Israel, they're probably thinking a lot like us. When we think of things like premarital sex, when we think of things like how do we deal with the homosexual community, and nowadays, of course, with the racial tensions, how do we deal with this racial issue? Lord, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? And we start to think of ways where we can offend people less, but we fail to recognize maybe we need to obey God more and stop worrying about offending people. Because brothers and sisters, the reality is in a world that continues to draw further and further away from God and closer and closer to sin, the more they will be offended by the truth of God. And our obedience will be offensive to them. It will be. You wonder why the first four or five centuries of the church were so heavily persecuted, killed for their faith. You wonder why. Yeah, you had a little tight, you know, like a little moment in history, maybe like 
you know, a thousand years where the church is the dominant faith. So yeah, it's an acceptable, you know, perspective and worldview. I I have I read this post online this past week about, you know, like everything that's happening with social media and there's censorship over conservative thinking and, and Christian uh, line of thinking and et cetera. And I said, good. This is going to help us purge the church of nominal Christians. We're better off without those people. And I don't mean that offensively. It's better for them and it's better for us. To know exactly where we stand. Because following Jesus is no joke. It's not easy. I'd rather the world make it harder. So we will finally see how much it costs to follow Jesus. God gives us a reminder here that he had given the Israelites clear warnings and instructions on how to deal with the Canaanites. He warned them about mingling, coexisting.